0: Hello, Professor Josh. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us in the Soft Robotics podcast uh, for the second time. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks a lot.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Marwa. I'm happy to be back.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So I'm curious to ask you this time. The first question is how you would like to define yourself?
1: Oh, my gosh. How to define myself? That's a great question. I I don't know. I... uh, I find the fact that, um, it's hard to define what my group does as a measure of, uh, that we're doing, we're heading in the right direction. I think, um, it's very easy in the sciences for, uh, particular disciplines to form. And then when they form, they harden and there become particular, uh, dogmas in each of those disciplines. So,
0: um,
1: I have always liked to try and work, uh, in an interdisciplinary manner in the, the intersection between, uh, between uh, disciplines um, mm-hmm. I guess um, I think the best summary of what my group does was actually uh, came from Linda Smith uh, a very uh, renowned psychologist at Indiana University she said "Josh, what what, what you do or what you are as a theoretical roboticist so I thought yeah. that was a great uh, a great term so I'll go with I'll go with theoretical roboticist
0: yeah that's great so I'm curious to ask you, was it challenging for you to maybe embark in something completely new? As, as normal in academia, sometimes you have to uh, avoid getting in the risk in terms of research. Was it challenging for you to find a passion and risk at the same time?
1: Uh, absolutely. So there is a lot of risk at working at the intersection of disciplines. Um, so I was very lucky to have uh, a very good PhD advisor, Rolf Pfeiffer in Zurich and a very good postdoctoral mentor, uh, Hod Lipson, who was then at uh, Cornell, and they both worked with me strategically about, you know, how to position the work we were doing together. And early on, I I tried to make sure that my work fit pretty squarely within one discipline, which was evolutionary Mm -hmm. algorithms. And only after some time, when I became a little bit more firmly established in academia, did I feel you know, ready to risk more by working more at the intersection between disciplines. So I think my advice usually to my students and to junior academics is to make a bit of a name for yourself within a discipline and only then start to uh, build additional work that that does not fit squarely within any one discipline.
0: Interesting, yeah. So I'm curious to go back about your childhood because I think that's almost, uh, in each episode we ask how childhood can affect you as a scientist. So do you remember any memories about your childhood that encouraged you to be aware today? Yeah, yeah I, I,
1: um So, so no, no members, members of my of family, family were, were academics. So I, didn't, so I didn't know you know, you know what, a what, a is, what a professor is or what a professor does, does or even or that there are professors. Are professors. Yeah, um, yeah. So there, um, was, so there no, was no nothing, nothing early, early on, on sort of pointing point me towards, towards academia. academia. Um, um, but I, was, but I definitely was definitely a curious, curious child, child I, I guess, like, like most, most children, children were. And, and um, I spent a lot, a lot, lot of time you know, you know, studying, studying and drawing animals and drawing robots. robots. So, so know, I, grew I grew up in the, 19 in the 1980s, 80s, a lot of sci-fi, sci-fi movies, movies and books and books so, so, so on. on. And at least in my mind, at least looking back, hard to say what I thought at the time, but that I didn't really see much distinction between, you know, the graceful movement Movement, movement of animals, of animals and, and the graceful graceful, graceful movement, movement of, robots, of robots at least in the movies. In the movies. Yeah. And, and I think again, again, many many years, many years later, later now I work now at the at intersection of robotics, and computer, and science, computer science, and biology. And so right. I think that right. interest in, in yeah.
0: What is what is, um, um, what is what is you know, you know adaptive, adaptive movement, movement and intelligent, and intelligent behavior, behavior divorced from you know biology or, biology or machines? machines. There's something, There's something that's
1: above that's, that's more general than, general than, any, than any one, any one, one those of those two types two of systems. systems. I think I was, I think curious, I was curious at that in some way as a, as a, child, as a child and, 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 and still, continue still continue to work continue on to, work on to this, yeah, day. Yeah. this day.
0: So if I ask you what is the most simple and beautiful, profound equation inspires you? Something in the three discipline, maybe. Inspire you.
1: Uh yeah. Um so for me I think it has to be F equals M A. Mm -hmm. So uh everything we do in my group is about embodiment, is is physical motion and F equals MA is just about as simple as you can get. But somehow F equals MA is the building block for motion. Grasping, mm-hmm. manipulation, social exchange, yeah. cultural exchange, mathematics, poetry, you know, all the way up to very abstract uh, ideas. yeah and of course, you know I, I'm not the the first one to be fascinated with this idea that what we may think of as things that are divorced from the body, like mathematics yeah. and poetry uh, are not. they are somehow very deeply and fundamentally rooted in f equals mm-hmm. ma.
0: Yeah, great. So I'm curious to ask you uh, this question. Uh, how you define soft robotics from your perspective? And I think everyone already know your breakthrough with your team about Xenobots. Uh, what sure. is the definition about soft robotics do you think that we have to consider as a definition?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So um, soft robotics, so, uh, so you think about the modifier soft. Um, mm-hmm. Often that's strange because we apply that to robots, or in our case, xenobots or biobots, which are often mixtures of rigid and soft uh, materials or tissues. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the term soft robotics is like the term nonlinear dynamics. So, you know, for, for a long time, because it was easier, mathematicians tended to focus on linear dynamics, And then, you know, that that became known as the field of, you know, dynamics in engineering. And then only later do people add the modifier, you know, nonlinear dynamics or even complex systems is another good one. Where that modifier actually suggests a larger and more inclusive class of phenomena. And um, so basically linear dynamics are are basically a, a... subset of nonlinear dynamics where the nonlinearity mm-hmm. is minimal or non-existent. So soft robotics, I would say, is the superset of what is of robotics, which for historical reasons most people equate with rigid robots, so links of metal attached together with rotational joints. But of course, those machines are a subset of soft robotics, which is things that are made up of soft and rigid parts where in some more traditional robots, the soft parts may be minimal or non-existent. So my definition of soft robotics spans, you know, and I think like many others, it is the, it's the term that captures all of robotics and this emerging field of, of bio, uh, biobotics as well, as well.
0: Very interesting. And I would like to talk again about non-ineerges, because I think that's a very interesting sure. point. And do you think that we embrace non in the material in general? Because we have a discussion about how we can access the beneficial non-linearities in the material or maybe in the structure level. What you thought about non-linearities and how we can access them in a beneficial way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um you uh, i mean all animals exploit nonlinearities in their bodies um, and there are you know there are a lot of robots and roboticists and material scientists who have teamed up to tackle this as well and that is that is definitely the future is uh, is focusing on exploiting nonlinearities in materials it is particularly difficult because obviously it becomes much more difficult to predict the outcome of a nonlinear action in a material and mm-hmm. Um, And there is another thing that makes it uh, challenging uh, or difficult to tackle, which is that ideas from AI are trickling into robotics. So obviously, with the deep learning revolution, there are a lot of uh, amazingly powerful AI methods that roboticists are applying to create or improve their robots.
0: Mm -hmm. But the
1: underlying assumption in most modern AI technologies, like deep, deep learning and so on, is that everything needs to be differentiable. And if you get into nonlinearities, there become places where you get not just nonlinear behavior but uh discontinuous behavior. And the AI methods that we're now applying to robots don't work very well there. So there's increased uh not fear maybe, but trepidation about you know handling nonlinearities because it may break the assumption that you know the system is differentiable everywhere. Um, yeah. so how to how to deal with that is is tricky. And of course in my group we work with evolutionary algorithms which have a number of limitations, but one of right. their advantages is that they can handle situations, parts of this the search space that are non differentiable or highly nonlinear or discontinuous.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I'm curious to ask you in this, in this context, what do you think maybe area or direction of research is very promising, but the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? Besides, that here get much, yeah, it doesn't
1: get much. Of, um, that's yeah. a, that's a good question. I mean, soft robotics gets quite a bit of attention uh, these yeah. days. Um, I think the. I mean, maybe within soft robotics, this is more visible than outside it, but this increasing focus on materials. So trying to design new kinds of materials for soft robots. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, personally, I think a lot of the work on um, metal uh, meta materials, um, uh, foam metals, all these very exotic uh, materials. This is particularly exciting, I think. yeah, the, yes. this intersection between material science and soft robotics. I think that's, that's, uh, that's yeah. very exciting.
0: Yeah. And I think that's maybe question, Minister in asking how you get the idea that you wanted to do with your team Xenobots. Why you, <laughs> you, you yeah, because it's, it's really, when you see most of, of course, you are more experienced than that, but when you look that you go for the, maybe the less risk, just, oh, maybe the trend but you go something beyond the trend and just we want to use biological tissues like the frog embryo. So how you get this idea?
1: Well, I, it wasn't me that got the idea and I don't think any one person got the idea, which is again, one of the, the, the fun things about science is if you get the right people together, they collectively yeah. come up with an idea that no one person would come up with. Um, That being said, I would give most of the credit to uh, Mike Levin, uh, the director of the Allen Institute uh, at Tufts um, Mm. and and his colleague, uh, Doug Blackiston, uh, who together discovered that you could stitch together frog cells at a millimeter scale and produce a a millimeter sized robot that is stable for seven to 10 days before it degrades. So um, that is definitely their discovery. The idea that you could uh, create an evolutionary algorithm that automatically designs those xenobots—again, that's something that our group, I, I would say, sort of came up with together over a series of weekly meetings where we were thinking about lots of other ideas that didn't end up going anywhere—and um, that that collective brainstorming is what led to the beginning of xenobots.
0: Yeah, that's great. So maybe the question, maybe. I think in the community, ask what are the missing pieces? For example, you said that when you have the right team, you can come up with maybe the right solution or maybe innovative solution and breakthrough. So, what do you think maybe is the missing pieces in understanding what's happening in biology and we can get this solution like Xenobots? Do you think we still have a lack of understanding or maybe communication between different disciplines? How do you see this? pieces missing pieces
1: yeah i don't think it's a lack of communication um i would say it it is something much deeper and again this this idea of the you know the philosophy of science or the history of science you know scientists are human beings it is much yeah. easier to come up with new ideas that conform to the current <clears throat> to the current paradigm Thomas Kuhn has, has written on this this idea of, of you know, normal science and, and extraordinary science, extraordinary in the sense that it, it breaks with the current paradigm. Yeah. So, I, you know, this that has always been inspiring to me is to try and work outside of normal science as best I can while still, you know, publishing work that is accessible and interesting to, you know, my students, mm-hmm. my peers and so on. Yeah. And, you know, clearly with the success of deep learning there, there, it is an incredibly powerful technology. And we have probably just scratched the surface of deep learning. There are many more discoveries mm-hmm. to be made in that field, but the success itself can often breed complacency that this is the route to, you know, artificial general intelligence or human level intelligence, whatever you, you believe the end goal is for AI. So we try, in my group, we try and identify what are the hidden assumptions in normal science, in AI or deep learning, for example, and what happens if you roll back those assumptions, what happens if you remove those assumptions, what new ideas or hypotheses emerge. You know. And so, you know, identifying hidden assumptions in a very successful science like deep learning is extremely difficult um, and is part of the reason why most people don't do it. In, in our case, the, the assumption that we tend to focus on is that uh, AI is currently very good at identifying patterns in data that's already made available to it. So mm-hmm. you can see this assumption in that most AI methods assume a data set a priori, that it's there right? Um, mm. or, and so, instead of thinking about AI that looks for patterns in data, we are more interested in AI that creates, makes, designs, and so on. And th- this has been you know, the dream of evolutionary algorithms since the 1960s, that mm. an evolutionary algorithm can create something that didn't previously exist. And once you start to think about creative AI, Rather than analytic AI, there's lots of possibilities that emerge, and I think even even the you know the core AI community is moving in this direction as well. There's a lot of excitement about generative uh, networks, a lot of excitement over the last few years about GANs, you know deep fakes, yeah. um, that sort of thing. This idea that that AI can make things or generate things, I think that's that's an assumption that AI doesn't do that. That that intelligence is about analysis rather than synthesis, that assumption I think is starting to degrade um, in, in AI itself.
0: Yeah, I think that's very interesting, Bart, and I think that's uh, yeah a very hot topic recently, but I'm curious to ask you about the structure because that's, the, the I think, also related to the multi-material. When we speak about in soft robotics, we have a challenge of combining different material, or maybe material with different mechanic, same material with different mechanical properties. But when I'm looking at Zunibot, sure. Combining the skin with the heart to make this motion. Do you think uh, maybe there's me other sorts how you design them? Or I'm not expert in that, but do you think there's me different structure beyond that what you have already done, or why select this design, or maybe the initial guess for that? How we come up with the initial guess?
1: Yeah, I mean uh, so. I think I heard many questions in there. One of them is, you know, what's beyond frog skin and heart muscle tissue? The answer is, of course, hundreds and thousands of different kinds of tissue types that you find in frogs, that you find in other species. You know, in this this first study, we basically made available to the evolutionary algorithm just two types of Lego bricks, skin and heart. Mm Um, yeah. we are continuing this work forward and, and making available many more types of, of tissues to the AI so it can build things using lots of different, quote unquote, Lego bricks. Um, you, you also were tr- highlighting this, this question of structure, which again yeah. is um, very important to us. So if you think about designing materials, you could parameterize, you know, um, the space of possible materials. And apply an existing machine learning method to, you know, regress to the optimal set of parameters to describe that material, and then manufacture it. And mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of advantages in in doing that. And again, that that emerging technology is going to be very exciting. But what happens if you don't know the number of parameters that you're you're trying to yeah. learn? Again, you come back to this idea of a generative process. So the thing that's being built, the structure, you know, may have more or less parts. If you come at this from a reinforcement learning um, point of view, you can't assume that the dimensionality of the state mm-hmm. space or the action space is fixed. The dimensionality might grow over the mm-hmm. training period. The robot may, you know, grow new new muscles there aren't many machine learning methods that are able to successfully grapple with, with those kinds of uh, machines. Mm-hmm. There's also yeah. the question beyond structure of topology. So not yeah. just the 3D shape of something, but you know the number of connected parts, the number of holes. Um, if you are thinking about swarms of robots or swarms of xenobots that temporarily attach and detach from one another, you have yeah. you know dynamically changing structure and topology. These are very difficult. Th- these are design spaces that are particularly difficult to find gradients and descend within.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think basically an open yeah. problem. Yeah, that's interesting. And I I I would like to go back about morphology, because I think that's also uh, a debate in soft robotic field. How how morphological computation can enhance understanding. Uh, how we control soft robots. So in Xenobot, how right. the morphology was important for you since it's dynamically changing structure and it's challenging. So how how you yeah. manage that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So again, as we were just talking about uh, automatically designing or finding good or optimal morphologies or mm-hmm. structures is particularly difficult. When we were uh, evolving the xenobots, it was even more difficult because the parts of the morphology, the parts of the xenobot body, there were lots of properties of those tissues that were unknown to us. So for example, the, the quote unquote motors that drive the xenobot is frog heart muscle tissue. And heart muscle tissue, if you put together into the shape of an adult, uh, adult frog heart, then all of that tissue will communicate with itself and spontaneously synchronize. And that's good because then the adult frog heart will decrease and increase in volume and act as a pump, which is what you want the heart to do. But if you take heart muscle tissue and and rearrange it, put it together in new patterns, um, and this is what we learned from our biology colleagues, you can't guarantee that all of that connected tissue will synchronize. Mm -hmm. So if we have an evolutionary algorithm that is tinkering with different ways of putting pieces of heart muscle tissue together, how does the evolutionary algorithm know how that tissue will act in the simulation? So Mm -hmm. again, maybe for your listeners who don't know, we were evolving uh, simulated xenobots in a physics engine, and we need to build into that physics engine the properties of these skin and these patches of skin and heart muscle tissue. Mm-hmm. So we asked Doug Blackiston, our microsurgeon colleague, we said, well, how should, how should we model the behavior of the heart muscle tissue? And, and Doug, in essence, shrugged and said, I don't know. <laughs> so we, we assumed that uh, in any simulated xenobot, um, that any patches of heart muscle tissue would, uh, would expand and contract in volume at, at random phase offsets from other mm-hmm. pieces of tissue in the same xenobot. What that means is you've now asked the evolutionary algorithm to try and build a machine out of unreliable parts. There, there's random action in those parts. This is an mm-hmm. extremely difficult design problem. Yeah. So I, uh, I, uh, I, I described this, you, uh, one way to think about this is imagine that you had to build a boat, um, and you could put human rowers into that boat, but the human rowers, when they row in the water, they're going to row at f- random phase offsets from one another. They're not going to synchronize and all row mm-hmm. together. Yeah. You can put as many of these human rowers in the boat as you want at any position, your task Mm -hmm. is to design the shape of that boat and where to put the rowers so that the boat goes straight as quickly as possible it's yeah it's basically an impossible task for a human to solve or at least no one's come to me with a solution yet but it turns out one of the things that as a computer scientist that was most exciting about the xenobots project is that an ai can solve this problem the evolutionary algorithm can figure out how to build a more or less reliable machine out of unreliable parts.
0: But I'm curious to ask you about, the, about Bart, you mentioned that every cell is moving in different, uh, um, maybe it, it individual is a moving uh, in different direction. And how you manage uh, to get uh, the finals in the boat moving in a certain locomotion? And it doesn't make, I, doesn't, I don't understand how this happened, making rolling or rotation. How you managed to do that?
1: Well, again, we didn't do it. It was the evolutionary algorithm that did it. And um, it's, again, very hard to describe the evolved solutions, but I will, I'll try to. Um, the main design that evolution produced um, was the one that we, re- we spent most of the time reporting on in our PNAS paper from January. That particular Xenobot, um, the bottom half of the Xenobot is all heart muscle tissue, and the top half is passive passive skin material. That Xenobot has two big back legs. I don't know if you'd call them legs, but at least it has two protrusions on the back. So when you put it on the bottom of a Petri dish, um, it basically rests on its nose, sort of falls face forward and then most of the mass is rotated forward. So when the the bottom of the xenobot starts to oscillate at random, you have this this non-random mass distribution so that the random pushing of the xenobot against the bottom of the Petri dish results in forward motion, which is what we evolved the xenobots to do. So yeah. it's, it's kind of, it's pretty cool because the evolutionary algorithm is exploiting lots of aspects of F equals MA here. It's mm-hmm. the, you know, the shape mass distribution. There's something about the way the bot breaks the symmetry of friction with the ground. So there's less friction um, in the forward direction than when pushing in the backward direction, which is what allows it to kind of slide or push itself forward or shuffle forward. The mm-hmm. putting the muscle on the bottom and skin on the top. It's evolution is kind of exploiting all the different features of embodiment that we made available to it.
0: Yeah. And I think also one of the questions maybe asked a lot how you can close the gap between what's done in simulating Xenobot and reality. And that's, I think. One of the question in the community, how we can close this gap. And in yeah, and this it, research, it's almost like the accuracy is so high, just how we manage also to do that.
1: Yeah, so the, the SIM to real gap is a fascinating unsolved problem. You know, researchers mm-hmm. have been working on this uh, since the early 1990s. Nick Jacoby at the University of Sussex in England was one. Of, was the one who named it the reality gap. Uh, this is This has been a focus for a very long time when you're working with soft materials the gap looks particularly scary because obviously mm-hmm. in soft materials there's lots of nonlinearities complex uh, you know friction things are going mm-hmm. on a lot of my colleagues have kind of thrown up their hand and said there is it's impossible to cross the sim to real gap for particular types of soft robots and they they might be right but i'm yeah. i'm more of an optimist i think um, Again, you can exploit the rich dynamics of soft materials to actually narrow the sim-to-real gap. Mm-hmm. If you have something that is that is soft, you can actually make extremely high friction with the ground, which means, for example, that if you don't model the friction coefficients uh, perfectly, it's okay, you because yeah, you have yeah. very high friction. Um, Uh, or you can again with soft material you can create a smooth surface that has extremely low friction so again if you don't get the the low friction coefficient exactly right it's good enough the the robot is going to evolve the ability to walk assuming that it either has very high friction or very low friction so you're kind of um, you're making two two discrete bins high and low friction and, you know, they're so far apart from one another, those two bins, that if you don't get the boundary, you don't model the boundary right, that's okay. So that's just kind of one example of how actually thinking carefully about embodiment can lead you to the realization that you can actually exploit embodiment to make the gap narrower rather than larger. Mm-hmm. One other one other approach to the sim to real problem that I think uh, a growing number of roboticists is uh, embracing is real to sim Mm -hmm. so once you deploy a machine to the world you know and that machine generates large amounts of data you can use machine learning methods to collect all that data and automatically refine your model your sim to to more closely match reality um th- that's something I worked on with with Hod Lipson um, back in the 2000s and and a lot of other people have taken that much farther since then but uh again that I think we can exploit modern AI methods to use real to sim to help with yeah. sim to real
0: that's interesting indeed. yeah and I would like to go again about the cognition about uh, in Xenobots. Its just sure. about how they are in uh, these cells are to which level they are intelligent, and do you think they have like feel uh, uh, like emotion in the material we we try to design something like uh, feel the emotion as well, so I don't know what yeah. the characteristic do you think. Uh, you still have to discover or maybe something is still you need to understand about dinobots
1: yeah this 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 idea of you know how intelligent the cells themselves are that this i've learned a lot recently about this from my colleague michael levin who is a yeah. who is a world expert on on this exact topic is that even in organisms or tissues or cells where you don't have any nervous tissue you don't have neurons or synapses there mm-hmm. is still a lot of intelligence there. Uh, M- uh, Mike refers to this as basal basal cognition. So, you know, n- uh, nervous nervous systems are you know one of the most recent innovations of Mother Nature. It's only a you know she's been creating you know adaptive agents for for billions of years before she ever discovered brains, and of yeah. course brains are basically just they just are making more efficient some process, some process of cellular communication that leads to what we call intelligent behavior. But brains did not create intelligence. They simply channel it or accelerate it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of examples of intelligent behavior in non-neural organisms. Now, how exactly cells communicate with one another in the xenobots or in, you know in organisms in general, that is an unsolved problem. And Mike's group at, at Tufts is dedicated to trying to crack that bioelectric code. What is it exactly that cells are saying to one another? to yeah. maintain useful form and function. And in the case of xenobots, what are they saying to one another when they undergo yeah. this, this major reorganization and still are able to produce useful function? We're hoping actually that the xenobots might serve as a new scientific instrument. They might We might be able to image or observe xenobots uh, in ways that are difficult or impossible to do with animals because mm-hmm. if you observe them over too invasively, obviously you kill the animal. So c- could xenobots actually be evolved to advertise their internal function? Can they show us, or can we evolve them to show us how the cells of which they're comprised talk to one another? I think that's a particularly exciting next step for mm. us.
0: That's very interesting, yeah. And maybe a stupid question, I don't know if the cell may be no, responsible. No such thing as
1: a question. <laughs>
0: Maybe stimulus to uh, external external uh, stimulus. I don't know because they already self-propelled. Do you think you aspire to control them in a different shapes and and have you ever think they can be responsive to external stimulus? I don't know if you have scans like that.
1: Yep. So um, so so uh, two questions there. So are they are they or could they be responsive to stimulus and could we control that process? So um, they are already responsive to their environment. Um, If you go back and look at some of the videos from the the initial um, Xenobot publication, we have Mm -hmm. some examples in there of uh, a a swarm of Xenobots that were placed in a Petri dish in which we also placed uh, a whole bunch of pellets that are smaller than the Xenobots. And -hmm. they seem to push those uh, pellets into piles um, we've seen an instance of one xenobot that actually circles around an individual pellet and continues to push it. It almost looks like a little small xenobot sheepdog that's, that's herding sheep. Um, and we, we did some investigations to show that it's very unlikely that that's just random behavior. It is more likely that the xenobot is sensing and responding to that pellet or to other xenobots in the dish. How it's responding, again, we don't know, but it's clearly not blind.' It's, it's clearly seeing and sensing the world around it and modifying its behavior based on what it senses. And if that is true and it looks like it is true, then it starts to suggest ways that you could modify and ultimately control that sensory motor coordination we haven't We haven't got there yet, but that's that's where we're headed.
0: Yeah, great. And I'm also curious about the part of maybe the Xenobot self being biodegradable and self-healing properties as well. And I'm curious about the question, can we design a material that never be damaged? And I, I think also Professor Sue from Harvard is interesting in, in this research line, how we can design material that never damage. And when I'm looking to Xenobot, I'm curious to ask you wh- what is the time scale they can heal, self-heal? And do you think that maybe the a structure you develop that you can predict the places that xenobots can be face damages, maybe in the future for a certain application. And do you think you can design the structure of a skin and heart in a certain way that so that the xenobots never damaged? Maybe biodegradable, but never damaged in their lifetime for seven days.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So could we make them even more resistant to damage than they are now? Yeah. So again, just for your readers, at the moment, what we know is that um, if you take a xenobot and cut it almost in half, it will mm-hmm. fold in on itself and reconnect the cleaved tissue um, over the course of a couple of hours. Um so it doesn't form scar tissue like mammals or, or we do, but it, does, it definitely does stitch back up the cut. Um, and again, the fact that it does so is, is pretty amazing when it's not in the shape of a frog. And so I think, like you were saying, I think there's lots we could learn from that about how to create non-biological robots or materials or, or uh, infrastructure that also is very resistant to damage. And I think, um, again, like you said, maybe some of the other people you've had on your podcast here are working on purely mechanical approaches to that. So you can create, you know, not a robot, but a material that just because of its material properties, its mechanical and material mm-hmm. properties will, you know, um, emit uh, a liquid that, that solid that flows into a cut and then solidifies again. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't require any intelligence. It's just purely mechanical. My intuition, and again, I'm a computer scientist, not a biologist, but my guess is that what's going on in the xenobots or in organisms is that they, they're built of this material, particular material that, that spontaneously wants to uh, mm-hmm. heal. And the intelligence of the cells is basically just to channel or accelerate that process. So I think in the robotics field... You can imagine robots made out of materials that even if the robot is, sh- is turned off and it's, and it's damaged okay. somehow, its body will passively try, uh, will deform uh, in some way to fix itself. And if the robot is turned on, it can sense what's happening and act in such a way to accelerate that process. Um, okay. The details of how all that would work, again, I don't know, but hopefully we can get some more hints from looking in more detail at Xenobots as they recover from uh, uh, injury. That's
0: interesting. Maybe the limitation that something, you think very challenging for designing Xenobots in terms of maybe preparation, sale uh, or fabrication, but the same thing very challenging or maybe technological roadblocks to having in a larger scale, or maybe realistic application like, um, for example, as mentioned, crawling through your Arter, uh, the human body for curing certain tumor. If you look for this example, for now, what do you think may be a really a technological look for you?
1: Yeah, so, um, okay. Uh, again, I hear two questions here. So the, the um, challenges to moving forward and then applications. So there are clearly many technical and, and scientific and engineering challenges remain. Um, the big engineering challenge is how to automate the manufacture of xenobots, so at the moment, um, Doug Blackiston, our very talented microsurgeon, builds the evolved xenobot designs almost cell by cell, or at least parts of tissue by tissue. It's an extremely manual, painstaking, and slow process. Um, so we're looking at a number of, you know, bioprinting and other types of uh, biological manufacture mm-hmm. synthesis technologies where we could connect the evolutionary algorithm to those bioprinters, and what's evolved in simulation could then be automatically manufactured. This is an idea that goes back to to Hod Lipson, uh, who originally proposed connecting 3D printers to evolutionary algorithms so that you could automatically print evolved solutions. That that I would argue is probably mostly an engineering challenge at the moment. The scientific challenge, which you already asked about, is this issue of control. How do we gain or how do we allow the evolutionary algorithm to gain more control over fine-tuning the behavior of, of xenobots? That's a scientific challenge because again, we don't we need to learn much more about how cells communicate with one another and how we can exploit that communication or direct that communication by putting together tissues in new ways. So basically, what it seems like at the moment is the best way to program a xenobot is by rearranging its body. And this is a very non-intuitive approach to programming or control for computer scientists or engineers. We tend to assume the body is fixed and there's some, you know, control circuitry or CPU that we can program to get the machine to do something useful. What if there is no CPU? What if there is no neural tissue in the Xenobot? You have to program Mm. it or control it by shaping it. That's, That's a big open... Uh, question. Um, assuming we solve the the scientific and the engineering challenges there, then maybe we could start to scale up this technology for potential applications. Um, uh, you know, the one the one that's maybe most exciting or, or potentially frightening to some people is the the internal medicine route. So that someday you may actually swallow xenobots in in pill form or uh, get an injection of xenobots. Um, Obviously, they probably wouldn't be Xenobots at that point. They would have to be built out of the, the patient's own cells um, mm-hmm. in order to subvert the immune response. Um, uh, my colleague Mike Levin was mentioning that some of the early applications of that or that of that approach to Xenobots would be uh, like knee surgery. So when people's knees wear out, um, the bone is worn down in unique patterns for each person. So there's no one size-fits-all mm-hmm. solution. Could you inject, uh, could you inject xenobite, xenobots into a human knee, and they could very gently abrade or uh, scrape away uh, mm-hmm. human bone to, to allow to to basically recover function uh, in the knee? I think that would be again a very specific example, but something that's almost doable with what we have today. Yeah. So that's the, that's that, yeah, that, those are yeah. sort of the, the human medicine applications. Um, we mentioned in the paper ecological um, applications as well. Um, obviously, climate change yeah. and pollution, uh, and microplastics, there's, there's so many environmental remediation tasks that remain to be done at scale. And um, for example, the the garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean. The, um, yeah. Most solutions involve some sort of robot trawler or big boat, but then you're bringing more metals and plastics into the into yeah, the patch right. itself. Could you, you know, could we create very large swarms of xenobots that that collect microplastics or collectively sift them out of waterways? That's not an application that we're gonna see anytime soon. You could imagine there would need to be very, uh, very careful regulation placed around a technology like that. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with living, living machines, there is always the issue about whether this system could get out of control. Um, mm-hmm. It's an example yeah. of an exponential technology. And, and as we know, you have to be particularly careful with exponential technologies.
0: We are closing in, I have a few questions. The first one, I think, yeah. um, do you think the community grasping uh, the research line, you, you and the team working And that's the first one. Do you think there's a maybe shifting and, and focusing how we can design or integrate biomaterials in our design or still there's a lot of effort to maybe understand what you're doing?
1: I, I Yeah. I mean, again, we're not we're not the first people to work in this area. You know, synthetic biology has been around for, you know, 10, 15 years at this point. Um, some of our colleagues have built living robots that are combinations of biological materials and artificial materials. So these are uh, biohybrids. So I think actually it's the synthetic biologists that are best uh, poised to take advantage of this this approach. The the one difference, the main difference between the Xenobots and a lot of other projects in synthetic biology is again, it's not the human who's coming up with the design, it's the AI. So you know, synthetic biologists are definitely applying AI to design, you know, um, uh, you know, n- new genetic interventions, um, creating DNA robots, you know, all sorts of things but i i think what we're trying to demonstrate is you can use the ai not to again look for pattern in data but you but use creative ais that create new structure new forms that don't um where the human is not introducing their bias about the shape or uh composition of those those machines i think there's growing interest in how to do that how to design biohybrids or completely biological machines from the mm-hmm. from the ground up for sure yeah. yeah
0: yeah and i'm also curious to ask you about maybe things uh, announcement of uh your in, i think in general after publication the the sound of maybe in media. and I, I also i think one of interesting thing when the kid i you shared this video in tweet she, she was explaining as you know how do you feel about maybe the perception of the general public and the kids and and this publicity you get from this project as a scientist, what did you thought about that?
1: Yeah, uh, that was quite an adventure. So um, yeah, we published the Xenobots paper back in January 2020, uh, two, yeah. mu- two months before the pandemic started. So it was obviously yeah. a different a different world at that time. Um, we, I mean, we kind of knew that there was going to be some some media interest. If you're making robots out of frog cells, you can expect you know there's going to be some media interest. But the the amount of media interest we got was at least for me much more than than expected. Um, yeah. And I you know, I guess in retrospect it's easy to, to understand. but um, and again, maybe in retrospect not surprising, there was sort of equal parts wonder and equal parts fear about this uh, technology. Yeah. It is quite different, I think, from a lot of the other technologies. At the intersection of biology and, and engineering, so I think that mm-hmm. was a little bit shocking to people. Um, yeah. And I think the fact that we mentioned applications in the paper, like I said, about uh, for human medicine or for you know introducing xenobots into waterways or soils, I think there might have been, and this might have been our fault. We there was sort of a, a misunderstanding that we're going to be doing that, you know, this year. Uh, applications are always you know far in the future we we absolutely are looking at you know how to create regulation regulation around this new kind of technology um, so I think yeah. that explains some of the a lot of the media interest um yeah. it's also you know it's a, obviously as a you know as a scientist it's gratifying to know that people are interested in what you work on and um, it also challenged us to be able to explain, not just the technical side of Xenobots, but again, the, the ethical side, you know, why, yeah. why we as the creators think that this, you know, will not be dangerous if it's treated in the right manner, um, rather than just us saying, don't worry, everything will be fine. That was, a, yeah. th- that was a learning experience for me about being able to defend my claim or our claim that if this technology grows, that we can uh, control it.
0: That's great, yeah. And as a scientist, is something maybe changing in you? Like, I have to maybe work harder as a, inside yourself. Is there something changing you after that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, like I mentioned, you know, the xenobots is could be an exponential technology. Meaning that mm-hmm. if there's enough raw material around, uh, or bi- bioprinters or whatever, that these things could keep proliferating. Um, yeah that's not something that I, as a roboticist, have worked on before. Of course, the idea of self-replicating machines or exponentially increasing machines has been around for a long time. You know, the public said this sounds like, you know, the the gray goo hypothesis. We're going to have frog bots covering the surface of the earth. So um, it's, it's, as a scientist, it's interesting to think about exponential technologies and how they yeah. they could be kept from growing exponentially. Yeah. It's also yeah. interesting um, because this is a uh, an AI-related exponential technology. And in AI, anybody who's worked in AI probably knows about the problem of perverse instantiation, meaning yeah. that if you optimize a robot or a neural network to do something, it will often... Uh, maximize your objective function, be able to do what you asked it to do, but not in the way that you wanted it to do it. Um, So, you know, you have an autonomous car, and if you tell it to go from point A to point B, it'll go up on the sidewalk and drive directly from point A to point B. It it does what you wanted, but not in the way you wanted it to do. So with with the Xenobots, you have these two big challenges that are converging perverse instantiation, making sure the Xenobots do not only what you ask them to do, but in a way that is acceptable to people, and Mm -hmm. to ensure during that process that you can keep these things from proliferating exponentially. That's obviously a big open question, and we are not going to be deploying Xenobots anytime soon until both of those challenges are addressed.
0: Um, maybe there's three questions, I, I know we're out of time, but first one, how, sure. how can we enable more inclusive culture around the combative idea? Since you highlighted yeah. many interesting ideas, and still pretty new, I don't, in soft robotics, we don't have so much research in, in this line, so how we can be intellectually inclusive?
1: Yeah, that's yeah. a great question. Um, this is important, obviously, for science and society in general. <laughs> um, I I self-identify as a white male, so uh, obviously I'm coming from a particular uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. One one way that I think we can be more inclusive, at least in, in soft robotics and biorobotics, is again that we are trying to um, explode this preconception that intelligence is about, you know, sitting quietly, having a big brain, doing, mm-hmm. you know, deep mathematics you know, for at least in the West that is often associated with, you know, white male culture. Mm-hmm. The the biobots and at least the, the idea of embodiment, which comes from psychology, this idea that the body is, you know, is as if not more important than the brain, that movement, action, you know, these are mm-hmm. all equally valuable in getting, uh, in surviving in the world. I think just that concept alone, if, it's, if it becomes more widespread in AI and robotics, I think it will go a long way to making AI and robotics more welcoming To, you know, maybe people that are not, you know, very skilled or interested in deep abstract mathematics, they're interested in dance, they're interested in collective behavior, how groups and societies, you know, can coordinate their actions, those are all aspects of intelligence that are also important. So I think that that from a purely intellectual point of view is is important. That, that's just the science itself. And then there is, yeah. of course, the culture as a whole. And this year in particular, I think um, society in general and academia in particular has looked at itself and tried to be honest about you know, uh, um, systemic racism and bias in nice. academia. And I, I don't have any new ideas there. I've just as I've just been trying to learn from the community about how to do that, which is to promote the voices and ideas of, you know, more junior members of the Academy, more mm-hmm. diverse members of the Academy, neurodiverse members of the Academy. Um, yeah. so as a, you know, as a more senior member of the Academy, uh, what I've just been trying to help, uh, amplify the voices of those that are, that are rising in the ranks. Um, yeah. and I think that's, Again, as a senior white male in academia, that's from from outside the science itself. That's the best way that that I can help.
0: Yeah. yeah thanks a lot. And I have a perception you have a lot of interest in psychology. I, I have the perception. I don't know if I'm right, but I think your answer was great. Yeah. Um, Thank so you. thanks a lot for that. And I'm curious to yeah. ask you about also again about this question we had all the time about publish and perish uh, culture in academia. Uh, yeah. I I I, yeah. I feel that you're really doing. Um, Maybe I'm still, maybe I don't have experience like you, but uh, when you have this passion for science and you want to do something very interesting and unique ideas that you really want to do that, but at the same time, there's a pressure in academy that you have to publish and have to I don't know what your yeah. thought about that do you think that's this affecting you or doesn't affect you oh,
1: it definitely affects me um again i i i have survivor bias i have survived in the academy so it's hard for me to look back on my own career and say what worked and what didn't yeah. or, or it presume to advise more junior members of the academy because the academy itself is changing but i yeah. think um you know most people want to work in academia uh, rather than go into industry because they want to work on, you know, seemingly yes. outrageous ideas or ideas that are not very popular, that, that's kind of the main reason to be in academia is to let curiosity drive. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, you need to secure a permanent position in the academy, like you say, and you, th- that that means publish or perish. I, I don't think publish or perish is going to go away anytime soon. What I tell my students is there's no reason why you can't do both. So, um, you know, if you're committed to becoming an academic, you have to publish regularly. And, you know, it is to try and diversify your portfolio. So publish, you know, maybe incremental results, but results that are firmly planted within one community. So that community starts to know who you are and what you're interested in. And then, you know, on the side, you can publish, you know, more more uh, unorthodox ideas. Um, mm-hmm. I've always been part of the artificial life community. I, I, ran, I helped run the artificial life conference this past yeah. summer. The A-Life conference loves crazy ideas. So for those of you that, you know, work at the intersection of robotics or biology or material science or AI... Please consider submitting papers to the Artificial Life Conference or the Artificial Life Journal. But at the same time, make sure you're trying to publish in NeurIPS or maybe some of the less competitive, you know, AI-centric conferences. It's important important to do both, I would say.
0: That's a really good uh, answer. Yeah. And do you think ego is still important for the researcher sometimes? Uh,
1: I think... Uh, I I can I can enjoy my privilege a little bit by, by, you know, publishing, focusing more of my efforts and my group's efforts on more unorthodox ideas like the Xenobots. Um, I think the more junior you are, it's important to establish It's it's important to find a community and get them to know about you. And then then as you become more established is to explore more unorthodox ideas.
0: Do you think maybe the most important quality yeah, you have gained while being in academia? One important quality.
1: Oh boy. Uh most important quality. Uh I would say I don't know about one. I would say there are two, which is mm-hmm. curiosity and grit. So, if you're curious but you you don't have the the will to you know, stay up late, work 14 hour days to prove that idea, write up the paper, submit it, finish the paper, submit, you know, deal with very negative reviews. You won't get very far in academia. If on the other hand, you have grit, so you, you have a great work ethic, you put a lot of effort in, but to very, you know, conservative ideas, then you're competing mm-hmm. with the 10,000 other people that submit to NeurIPS. And it's very hard to establish yourself as an independent researcher. So curiosity and grit together, curiosity can lead you into new, you know, new areas. And grit will allow Mm -hmm. you to put in the effort to demonstrate that that crazy idea you had is actually worthwhile for other people to to learn about. I would say that in not myself, but all the academics I know, they have they have those two qualities in, in some way.
0: That's indeed great. And lastly, maybe what is the best advice that was given to you and was (laughs) life-changing?
1: The best advice that I got. Uh, You're going to think this is a joke, but this is absolutely serious. Um, uh, I was told by senior academics, don't listen to me, meaning I I can't give you any advice because when I was a graduate student, my advisors, the generation, you know, uh, ahead of me said they grew up in an, in the academy of the 60s and 70s which looked nothing mm-hmm. like the academy of the 90s when i was a graduate student and they said mm-hmm. i can't I, I don't know how to advise you you know except just do do what feels right and that, you know if at that point i was a phd student so i made it far enough that i was starting to get some success on my own and trying to distinguish myself from my phd advisor and they basically said, you know, I mean, it sounds uh, cliched, but basically listen to yourself. Don't don't take too much advice from senior you know, members of the academy, because, again, they suffer from survivor bias. They probably can't tell you why they were successful. They don't know. And even if they did know, that advice probably doesn't apply to those that are trying to establish themselves in academia in the 2020s so i will pass along the same non-advice which is don't take advice from senior members of the academy
0: that's, a, that's a really wonderful advice and profound yeah that's great advice yeah and Thank do you, you have Mama. any final words you'd like to say for software community Final words, do
1: you have any final words? Yeah, just just that, um, uh, again, thanks for having me on the show. I love the podcast. I've listened to almost all the episodes. I I know several members of the soft robotics community and we collaborate already, but I've I've learned about and met some other collaborators through your podcast. So thank you to you, Marwa, for being a great host and asking great questions and helping to stitch our community together uh, in, in, uh, Thanks a in lot, ever for...
0: written... Thanks. I, th- I think very True enjoyable very and, and very informative so discussion. So Thanks a lot, Professor. Thank you.